Well, I don't know about you, but I, I like that it's toasty in here. So I like heat. So I know some of you might be hot, but uh, and I, I agree for you. But uh, if, you, if you are really hot, well, maybe next week, just let us know. We'll try to adjust the heat. But some of us are enjoying it, too. Um, if you are uh, trying to look ahead, uh, we have decided uh, from after we're done with Mark, we just have a couple sermons left. We are going to be going into the Psalms, which we've actually never done a series on the poetry uh, in terms of like Hebrew Psalms. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, then Lord willing, we'll go into a New Testament epistle. Uh, and then Lord willing, probably doing the Apostles' Creed, walking through that. Uh, so just as you look ahead, but we'll be hitting some Psalms. If you have a certain Psalm that you'd love to explore, feel free to let us know and we'll see if we can get it uh, added. Well, as you know, uh, being accepted by other people feels really good. In fact, being accepted by other people, you might almost say, feels intoxicating at times. I mean, you learn this as a very young kid. To be welcomed by friends at school feels great. And in fact, you've probably had the opposite experience to realize when you're not accepted how crushing that is, how isolating that feels. Feeling accepted makes you almost feel content for a moment. Now, sometimes it's not just being accepted. It's one thing to be accepted, but it takes it to another level to be approved. Right? On Facebook, if you have a friend on Facebook, it's one thing for them to be your friend. It's another thing for them to like your stuff. Right? They, they approve what you said. We want approval from other people. And if we go even further, it's sometimes it's not only that we want to be accepted, we want to be approved by people, but we also want to be applauded, to receive applause. I mean, think if somebody not only likes what you said on Facebook, but they share it with the world. They're, they're applauding you. These all feel really good inside, and we call this the fear of man, right? This, this is what we call it when we seek to, to live for the opinions of people, because what happens is sometimes we will do things or not do things in order to have the acceptance of other people. It's that important to us, that we want to feel that from other people. Other people like us. They approve us. We call that the fear of man. And when you experience this, you know that it's enslaving. Because these people now have a power over you that you will make decisions in life in order to please other people. And not only is it it's enslaving, but it's incredibly unsatisfying. Now, don't get me wrong. That when you're accepted and approved by people, that feels really good. I mean, that is tasty. Like a brief moment of ecstasy. I'm accepted. But you know as well as I do, that could be here today, gone tomorrow. And you're on this roller coaster ride of the approval of people. And even though we know that it might be gone tomorrow, we still chase it. If you've ever been to maybe a, I don't know, a cabin or something out in the middle of nowhere, and you've been really thirsty, maybe you just got there and you're super thirsty, all your water's gone in the car, and you finally get there and you turn on the faucet and it looks so nice and clean and you put it in the cup and you drink it 
and it's incredibly metallic. It's just this terrible taste, and you think, oh, that's, that's not refreshing at all. But somehow, for the next several days, that water will still have some sort of a power over you because you, you know it won't fully satisfy you, but yet you'll keep going back to it because you need something for your thirst. It's very much what the opinions and acceptance of other people is to us. We know that it can't satisfy, and yet we keep running to it because there's some sort of a quick relief, a taste. And not only is it unsatisfying, but it's also damnable. Because what it does, it, God is supposed to be the one on the throne. God is supposed to be the only one who can satisfy our souls and give us contentment and give us joy. But when we place people on that throne as if their acceptance can do that for us, that is damnable. That is telling God that he is not enough. I need the approval of these people. It comes out in all sorts of ways, right? You might be willing to do something that you normally wouldn't, uh, some inappropriate language or an inappropriate joke or laugh at an inappropriate uh, slander at work because you have your coworkers next to you or your friends at school next to you and, and they're saying something and in order to be accepted with them, you sort of just have to play along. Or you might be willing to embellish a story a little bit because if you, if you make yourself out to be a little bit better, that will improve your acceptance in the eyes of other people. Or maybe you make a mistake at work or in the home and you're quick to want to try to hide it, if you can, because you're, you're embarrassed. You're going, you're going to be exposed as having some weaknesses. Or maybe if you're at small group and you said something and as soon as it comes out, you wish you could grab it back, but it, it, it's out there. And now the rest of the time you sit and you're ruminating over what you just said because you're afraid what other people are thinking about you. Or on the other side, you said something that was just phenomenal. People loved it. And now you sit there for the rest of the small group and think, man, I, I have good stuff. Look at how I've increased my acceptance in the eyes of this people. It comes out in all sorts of ways. Different fruit, same root, the fear of man. Our passage reeks of the fear of man. It, it is the fear of man to its ultimate end. And not only does the fear of man want to take God off the throne, but they actually kill God because of the fear of man. Acceptance of other people is too great. The good thing about our passage, though, it not only shows us uh, the, fear, the depths and the darkness of the fear of man, it also shows us the solution. Where do we go? And so this morning we'll hit three themes. Uh, first, we'll take a look at the greatest injustice, and then we'll see a great problem, and then we'll see the only solution. The greatest injustice, a great problem, and the only solution. We won't unpack all, all, the whole passage, but we'll just we'll really hit those themes. Uh, the greatest injustice, if you remember the context, we haven't been in Mark for a while, uh, so we went through Advent and such. If you remember the context, you can flip back to the previous page if you'd like. But uh, remember, Jesus uh, was being interrogated, or Jesus on trial by the religious leaders. They had had, had enough. Uh, he was getting the fame of all the people, and they were sick of it. 
They didn't like his claims, and it was time for them to try to off him. So what was happening in chapter 14, you remember, through the night, they, they had arrested him, and not, now they're interrogating him. What they're trying to do, the religious leaders, is they have to come up with a crime that Jesus has committed in order to have Jesus killed. Because, see, the, the, the Jewish leaders, they don't have that kind of authority, to, uh, the, the authority of the sword, much like the church today. Right? The church does not possess the authority of the sword. That's the state. Right? So the church can't uh, convict someone of a crime or send someone into jail for 10 years. We don't have that kind of authority. That's the state. We can, we can recommend that to the state. We can send people to the state. But it's the, it's the state that has the sword. And in the same thing in this context here, the Jewish leaders don't have that authority. Rome does. And so if they want Jesus killed, they have to find a crime that Rome is going to see as a crime. And so if you remember, it's kind of like they're trying to find all these uh, false witnesses and nothing's sticking. And finally, if you remember, the high priest could, could not take it any longer. And he just stood up and said, tell us now, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And you remember if, uh, Jesus' response there in chapter 14, verse 62. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting, sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. A, a very clear statement that he is the universal, everlasting king promised in Daniel 7. Jesus says, yes, that's true. I am the anointed one of God, and I've come to rule. Now, for the Jewish leaders, that's blaspheming against God because they don't believe him. But they also realize that charge might work. Because if we go tell Pilate that Jesus is claiming to be the king... He will look like a revolutionary. He's trying to overthrow the government. And Rome will not stand for that. Because they kill people who do that. So now they have their charge, and that's what they bring uh, at the beginning of 15, uh, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests, they, they held a consultation uh, with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, the, the Sanhedrin. They bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Mark doesn't go into detail, but by the question we can tell what the charge was from the chief priest. Are, are, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gives this interesting answer. He says, you, you have said so. In the original language, it's just, you say. The chief priests accuse him of many things. Pilate again asks him, hey, do you not have an answer to make? Do you hear all these charges that they're bringing against you? But Jesus did not give another word. So much so that Pilate was amazed by his silence. So as they bring this charge to Pilate saying, look, this guy is claiming to be the king. You should be threatened by this guy. He's, he's stirring up all the people. And in Jesus' response, he, he sort of gives this answer that's sort of like saying, yes. That is true, but he's basically saying, yeah, yes, I am the king. In fact, uh, the other authors, biblical authors, bring this out. Yes, I am a king, but it's not, I'm not, my kingdom is not of this world. The, the, what they're trying to get me put to death for, they're thinking something different. And Pilate, actually, as the story goes, he seems to catch on to this. He, he realizes that uh, he's not actually guilty of what they're trying to uh, get him convicted for. Because uh, we actually see in verse 10 that he realizes that it's out of envy that the chief priests brought him here. And then if you go down, uh, as he's brought before the crowd, uh, and they're all stirred up. In verse 13, uh, he cried out again. They cried out, 
crucify him, uh, Pilate says to the crowd, why? What evil has he done? And rather than give an answer, they have no answer. But they don't care. That's, that's not their point. We just want this guy dead. We don't, we don't have a charge. Just crucify him, Pilate. And Pilate is trying to get an answer. He already sees that there is no, nothing to convict him of. In fact, again, the other authors bring this out because Peter, uh, Pilate had sent Jesus over to Herod. Herod didn't find him guilty. So Pilate and Herod actually became friends that day for the first time. And they didn't find him guilty. And nobody had a guilty charge. And yet they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. The innocent one here is being charged as guilty. And if you take this further, Scripture clearly attests that not only did Jesus not commit a crime in this scene, but throughout his whole life did not commit a crime against the state, did not commit a crime against God himself. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, him who knew no sin became sin. Or as the author of Hebrews says, that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the greatest injustice in the history of the world. The Son of Man, sinless, is being convicted as the guilty. And he will experience the guilty verdict that is preserved for only the worst of the worst. Not only death, but death on the cross that's meant to shame and torture. Now, you who are beloved of God, we hear this, and you might ask, how, how is this supposed to land on us? And one thing that you might experience as you read it is a sense of indignation. And, and that, that's good, because God has made you to love justice, and God loves justice. And so when we smell injustice, we, we feel indignation inside. That's not right. When you see innocent people mistreated, it makes you angry. When you see corruption on the highest level and people just turning away because it's going to, they don't want to mess up the advancement of their career, and meanwhile other people are suffering, it, it stirs up indignation within you. And you experience it on smaller levels too. I mean, you experience this probably as a kid if you had a brother or sister, Right? Your, your sibling does something wrong, they get caught, and you get thrown in with experiencing the punishment too. There's no screen time for anybody today. Well, I didn't do that. Why am I guilty? Or someone steals a package off your front porch and you're not able to locate it. Maybe you don't get it back. These just subtle ways, or maybe, maybe you had to do an extra chore this week because the person who was assigned the chore didn't do it, and you got stuck with it. It's just this, these small ways of this sense of injustice, and it, it makes us frustrated inside because God made you to love justice, and that's, that's a very good thing. And you think, if we get frustrated when we see injustice by us fellow sinners, how much more should we have in indignation when the Son of Man, perfect, is falsely condemned as a criminal. Not only indignation, but also comfort. We should experience comfort from this passage. Because the reality is, is many of us will experience injustice to us, sometimes on major levels, sometimes on 
daily kind of week by week levels, still we experience this. And a, a passage like this helps us to see that the Son of Man, the Good Shepherd, he experiences the, the, the same pain that I experience when, when I experience injustice that you experience. And one of the most frustrating things sometimes is that the injustice we experience is unequally distributed. There's some here who will experience a lot of it through your life, and others will experience a little. But the Son of Man knows your pain. He's walked the same road, and he comes close. And not only that, does that comfort us, but we see this scene, and we know that the greatest injustice in the history of the world was not outside God's plan. That actually won the salvation of God's people. The greatest injustice of the world turned out for our greatest good. That's the God we serve. He is the one in control of history. There, you will not experience any injustice, according to what God says, that he will not turn for your good. Now, we may not feel that in a moment, but this scene actually promises us that. I mean, it, it, it assures us that. If God can use the worst injustice in the history of the world for your good and for the glory of God's name, Surely, any injustice we experience, God will do the same. But now we ask the question, what stirred up this injustice? Where, where did this come from? Such an act. Well, we could easily say, well, well, according to Acts 4, God is the one. He's the primary one in control here, and that would be true. God, Pilate and Herod and the religious leaders did exactly as God's hand planned. He's the primary uh, one here. But of course, there's what, what we would call the secondary actors, our pilot, the people, the crowds, the chief priests. They're the, the secondary ones, uh, God working through them. But then we ask further, like, what would make them do that? What would make them do such an act? And Mark highlights this for us very nicely. This is where we get now to the great problem. Uh, let's read uh, 6 to the end again and, and see if you can just spot, uh, as Mark shines the spotlight on the fear of man, that the fear of man, the desire for acceptance and approval of other people is what's driving this whole thing in the hearts of the people. Verse 6, now at, at the feast, uh, Pilate, he used to release or give a pardon for, for the, the Israelite people, uh, one prisoner for whom they asked. Now, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up, and they began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Because he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests, they, they stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Well, then, what should I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And Pilate miscalculated what was happening here. They cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I trust you saw that there. First group we have is in verse 10, you have the chief priest. Mark tells us right there that uh, it was out of envy that they delivered up Jesus. 
You see, the, the chief priests, as we read in the Gospels, they loved the fancy seats in the synagogue. They loved to walk through the streets and have people respect them. It, it feels good when people like you. And it feels good when you can walk into a crowd and people revere, revere you. It gives you a sense of power. And they loved it. And Jesus was a threat to that. He was an obstacle to that. Because people also, as, as much as they are looked, in, looked to and revered, Jesus is starting to now become higher than them. And where people are flocking to him, and their prestige is being threatened. And so what causes them to want to get rid of Jesus is Jesus is an obstacle to them of their acceptance by people, their approval from other people. The second group is the crowd, of course. The crowd uh, there ends up getting stirred up by the chief priest now to ask, for Pilate, ask Pilate for Barabbas instead of Jesus. So for the crowd, the, you know, they love to be accepted by the leaders, and they love to be accepted by their friends. So they're in, you, you kind of have this mob mentality. You start doing what everybody else is around you because you want to be accepted. Now, everybody in that crowd had a choice, right? They, they could say, no, we want to do the right thing here. We want Jesus because we have no crime against him. So release to us Jesus. That, that would be the right thing. The obstacle or the conflict here is if they say that, then they lose the approval of the person standing next to them. They lose the approval of the leaders over them. They'd rather have that. They'd rather have the acceptance of people and the approval of people than do the right thing. And so they just say, crucify him. We don't have an answer. Just crucify him so that I keep the acceptance of the people. And, of course, you have Pilate, verse 15, tells us, Pilate now knows Jesus is in this, and he's already made that uh, conclusion. And yet, instead of doing the right thing, he wishes to satisfy the crowd. So here, again, Pilate has a choice. He can do the right thing and let the innocent one go and give Barabbas the judgment that he does deserve, which is crucifixion. But if he does that, the crowd is going to be more stirred up. And if the crowd gets stirred up more, actually one of the things that might happen is Pilate actually might be demoted. Because if Jerusalem gets stirred up more, his bosses are not going to like that. And so Pilate, he wants to keep the crowd satisfied so his bosses aren't upset. And so he'd rather do the wrong thing as long as he can have the acceptance of the people and still keep his position of power. You, you see what's happening here. This is the fear of man in all its ugliness. This is, this is the end of the road here, brothers and sisters. And I sure am glad I'm not like that. No, I'm very much like that. <laughs> it might look prettier on the outside at times, but I'm very much like that. And, you know, the reality is, is that As people who worship Jesus, though we wouldn't say this, oftentimes the way it comes out is to say something in our hearts is, God, I, I do want your acceptance. I, I appreciate that, and I want your acceptance. I need it. But what I really want even more is the acceptance of those people. So you have a 12-year-old girl who comes home from school. She's had a hard day, maybe at the lunch table. Some of her friends 
kind of were snickering at her, maybe the way she was talking or the clothes she was wearing or something about her hair. They're kind of poking fun at her. And she found out throughout the course of the conversation that uh, her friends were having some sort of a party that night and she wasn't invited. So she comes home crushed, feeling like she has not been accepted now by these girls that she thought were her friends. And you you might even at that moment uh, try to encourage her to say, you know, honey, mommy and daddy love you. And you can guess what she'll say. Yeah, great. But I want their respect. I want their acceptance. And you might say, yeah, but even greater than mommy and daddy loving you, God loves you. And God accepts you. And that will never change. And that might help a little bit. But you know what often happens, at least in my heart, when I was 12? If somebody said that to me, I'd say, yeah, that's great. But what good is that if they don't accept me? I need their acceptance. It's not only for 12-year-olds, it's for 22-year-olds. Take a young man, he's been spotting a, a female, and he thinks, you know, she could be good, a, a good wife. And he finally work, makes up the, works up the courage to go and ask her on a date or something, and... She just looks at him and says, you know, I, I'm flattered. That's, that's, that's kind that you asked me that, but I just got to tell you, we're, that'll never work. And I love you as a brother, but this, that'll never be a thing. And, of course, he is crushed by it. And you meet with him for coffee, and you say, brother, just remember, God loves you like crazy. And that might help a little bit. But when I was 22, if you told me that, I would probably say, yeah, that, that, that's good. I, I, I appreciate that. But I want her to love me. I want her acceptance. That's what I want right now. And it's not just for 12-year-olds or 22-year-olds. It's for 45-year-olds. I'm a grown man. I still struggle with this. You know, I, I perform poorly in, in some sort of a thing that I'm doing, whether it be softball or preaching or just anything. I am embarrassed. I, 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 and you can tell me, well, God, God loves you, Dan. He'll, he'll, never, he'll never look down on you. And, and I would probably say in my heart, I, I appreciate that. I love that. But I want them to love me. I want them to think I'm great. It looks prettier. But it's the same root. And we struggle with this. Now, why would that be? If it's so ugly and we know it's so unsatisfying, why would we still do it? Well, one is because it's very tangible, right? I mean, to have God's acceptance, it's, you can't necessarily see it. But I can see the approval of people. I, I can tell, right? I, I can feel it. It feels good. I can see it. It's very tangible. I can, I, I can put my eyes on it. But, but second, I think we, we just simply, uh, we get a distorted view of what it's actually promising. You see, the acceptance of people, the approval, uh, of, or acceptance from people, approval from people, it promises you something. All right? It promises you contentment. It promise you, promises you significance. You're important. It promises you satisfaction. It, it promises you something, and we get distorted, a sort of distorted view as if it actually can give you that. The problem is it just can't. Now, a number of years ago, 
there was a team of us that went to a country where uh, we were there. Um, it, was, it was very hot, and uh, we were digging trenches for, uh, to bring water. And uh, we couldn't drink the water uh, because uh, our, just our stomachs weren't, couldn't handle the, the stuff that was in the water. So in order to drink water, because it was excruci excruciatingly hot and we were very sweaty, we had to drink water, they would boil uh, the water for us over a fire. And so we would fill our water jugs with it, uh, which was super gracious. The only problem was that the water was incredibly smoky. It was the worst water I had tasted because it was just tasted like pure fire uh, smoke from a fire. And it was excruciating to eat or drink, but you had to drink it because that's the only way you can survive, right? And so um, what, what we learned is somehow if we can make it a little bit tastier, maybe we'll, it'll be palatable. So we got, I can't remember if it was lemons or limes, and we're putting all these lemons in there. And you look at the jug and you go, that's going to do it. I'm so thirsty. That's going to help me. And so you drink it and you think, that's terrible. That did nothing, but now it's a smoky lime. That helped me no didn't do anything for me. But you, you work throughout the day and you're super thirsty and you keep looking over at the jug and you say, this time it's finally going to work. I'm adjusted to it. I'll finally like it this time. You take a swig and what happens? That's terrible. It just never satisfied. But it keeps promising me something. I keep falling for it because I need it. I, we were made to be accepted. We were made for community. So the desire for acceptance, the desire for approval, that inherently is not bad. God has made you like that. The problem is we look for it in people. We were made to look for it in God. And because we don't, we are unsatisfied and we deserve the judgment of God. The everlasting, conscious wrath of God. Because we have told him, you're good, but you're just not good enough. I'd rather have these people. So what do we do? Well, I think before we get to that, I think you would, we should hear the, what's screaming from this page as uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that the, the narratives of Scripture are written uh, for examples for us, to warn us. I think Mark spotlighting this, this fear of man here for us is, is a call to us to flee the fear of man. It will never satisfy your soul, and it only leads to the judgment of God. Flee from it, brothers and sisters. But where do we go? Well, the passage here gives us the only solution, which is actually a double injustice in the passage. So first we saw the greatest injustice that ever happened, but here we actually see a double injustice in the passage. Barabbas, and what happens to him is a vivid picture, vivid picture of a substitution that needs to happen for all of us. And he experiences that on a horizontal level, and the argument's not that he became a follower of Jesus, but it's a vivid picture of the true substitution that needed to happen. So Barabbas, who was this guy? Well, Mark tells us a little bit, verse 7. He's among the rebels who are in prison, so it's, he's with a group of guys. Uh, presumably all, all men, perhaps females as well, but he's with the rebels in prison uh, who had committed murder. So we got a murder on, on, on our hands, and the murder happened in the insurrection. So Barabbas was a part of a group who actually was trying to th overthrow Rome. They had some sort of plot, and they all got caught. 
Now, for getting caught in an insurrection, the penalty is death. Uh, John actually tells us that uh, uh, Barabbas was a robber. It's the same word that's used about the two thieves that Jesus is crucified next to. They're, They're both robbers. And that word can be translated as bandit, revolutionary, insurrectionist. So it's possible, something probable, uh, something almost absolutely, that the the men who are crucified next to Jesus are actually part of Barabbas' group. They were all involved in this insurrection, and that was the sentencing day, because they knew they should be crucified. They fought the law, and the law has won. And so you can think about uh, Barabbas on that day, knowing that this is the day, sitting in his cell. And maybe he hears the, the muffles of the, the crowd. And he's, he's trying to picture that soon he's going to be called. Perhaps they'll flog him first, like they often do with such criminals. Sometimes they die before they are even crucified. Their back just shredded to pieces by the flogging. Maybe, maybe that's ahead. And if that's not ahead, uh, he's surely going to then be crucified. Absolute shame, absolute torture. And so maybe Barabbas is trying to, to, trying to picture that. How, how is he going to endure this? And he hears the, the muffling and the shouting outside. He can't quite make it out. But all, all of a sudden he hears the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Perhaps Barabbas at that moment even feels the shame of his own people calling for him to be crucified. And the guards come, say, Barabbas, it's time you're being summoned. I would imagine him in such fear, having a little bit of shake to him and getting up and shuffling over to the guards and they grab him by the arm and they slowly bring him. And as he comes through the the door and he looks out and he sees the crowd snarling, spittle flying all over, crucify him, crucify him. And the shame he would feel. This is it. This is the last moment. And he's ushered out to stand by this man they call Jesus of Nazareth. As he stands and looks at the crowd, They're all sneering, yelling to crucify. They're upset. He's feeling the shame. Maybe as his mind starts to go numb, maybe he closes his eyes and just awaits the flogging that's about to begin on his back. And he waits there. And he feels a sudden nudge on the shoulder and he braces himself, awaiting the flogging. And another nudge from the shoulder and the, 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 the soldier says, Barabbas, go, you're free. We're crucifying this man. You're free to go. Boy, I tell you, if that was me, I'd run straight through that crowd and never look back. This man knows he's committed a crime. He knows he deserves the judgment. And somehow this man, innocent, is going to take the crime. The innocent takes the place of the guilty, and the guilty is set free. And what a picture of what has to truly happen in order for us to actually receive the acceptance of God. 
We have rejected God. Almighty God, eternal, all-powerful, and we deserve his judgment for it. And because we are the Barabbas, that the crucify him, crucify him, crucify her, crucify her, is about you. And yet the Son of Man steps in and nudges you out of the way. says, I will take it on your behalf. And when we, when we can experience the fact that because of the death of the perfect Son of Man, and it really drips down to our soul, that we are truly accepted by Almighty God, and he loves us with an unstoppable, undying, unshakable love, that does something inside of us. Suddenly the, the power of the acceptance of other, poop, uh, other people, it starts to lose its flavor. It starts to lose its power. If you can imagine, as we were digging those trenches, drinking those jugs of water, or trying to drink those jugs of water, or if you're in a cabin and you're drinking that metallic water, if someone were to have dri driven up in a truck and dropped off a couple 50-gallon drums of fresh spring water, well, you know what we would do. We would fill up new jugs of that spring water, and I would never take another sip of that smoky water. I would still use that water. I would use it for its purposes, wash my hands, clean some dishes, clean the, the clothes. But I'm not using it to try to satisfy my soul, because I've just found water that actually does that, that satisfies my thirst. And when, when the gospel actually takes root and comes into our soul, there's a satisfaction drinking from the well that never runs dry, the living water of Christ himself, that the acceptance of people begins to feel less powerful against us. And brothers and sisters, if you have been welcomed, the beloved of God because of the death of Christ, you are the apple of God's eye, always beloved, and he will always welcome you. May God give us the ability to experience that, refresh from that, and drink from that well that we never run dry, never look to the approval of other people so that we find our satisfaction. And with that, let us go to the Lord's table and we confess our sins to God, that we, we do look to the approval of other people. And we are accepted yet even still. Even though you've done it last week, even though you will do it this week, you are accepted before God, not because you're going to get it right, but because Christ has taken the punishment for you.